0: God, for your love. Thanks for your spirit that lives in us. Would we be led by you this week, this day? Help us to come under your, your spirit and your guiding. Help us to see with your eyes. Wow, thank you. Thanks for leading us so well. I feel like my heart's kind of in my throat. Nat, I love it when you play. Oh. Like you guys are good too, but it's, it's rich. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, we, we're we in week three of our series that will take us through into to Christmas, Christ Mission church in in theological terms we are exploring and not very deeply i might add but we are we are exploring how our christology shapes our missiology which then in turn determines our ecclesiology so well done dan cornish this morning for for, for citing that back to me he's like this is what we're doing this it was like yes that's it good job all the ologies Um, And so there is something of an order to this, it seems, that when we have uh, and when we're growing into a fuller and a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, what it is that he ultimately wants and what it is that he's doing in history, that then shapes our action in the world. It shapes our sense of purpose, our sense of mission and then as we come to understand and we and we grow in this this shared mission together our co-mission then this determines the kind of community we create in other words the the the, the church the the ecclesia the community of brothers and sisters on mission in the world last week keith introduced our first big Christological idea the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's promised Messiah you cannot unhook Jesus the Messiah from the story of Israel Jesus is the resolution to the Israel story All of the promises of the prophets about the coming Messiah who would would re-establish this everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness and, and justice, these promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so today's theme, it follows straight on. So we know that the Messiah, which is a Hebrew word and that Christ which is the Greek word um, this is the anointed one the anointed and promised king the king of all creation the king of heaven and earth and so this is the idea we're looking at today that Christ is king and so this message has got a little bit of gravity to it so buckle up because when we truly understand Christ as king It has implications. It has significant implications in terms of our followership. It has implications in the most fundamental sense of what it means to be Christian. We may have a handle on what it means to follow Jesus as our saviour, the one who rescued us from sin, from death. But what is required of us if he is indeed the king? And so this is our topic. As with any big idea in scripture, we need to understand this idea of of king uh, in terms of in the context of of the story. And so let's start here and recognize that the Bible, that scripture from Genesis to Revelation, written by about 40 odd different authors across the span of maybe 1400 years across different genres and contexts and styles, first and foremost tells a political story. What takes place in the garden in Genesis 3, that is a political uprising against the sovereign creator and against his government, against his rule, against his order against his authority. What follows then is the story of this sovereign creator graciously working with his rebellious creation to re-establish his government, his sovereign rule, his sovereign order throughout the cosmos. And we might not recognize it straight away as a political text because it reflects the policy of a government unlike anything that we're familiar with. In fact, we might straight out reject the Bible as being political because it bears no resemblance to our political categories. And that's true. This is why Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, it would behave like your kingdom's. The government that is on the, upon the shoulders of Jesus is different than any sort of government that we are used to, but it is a government nonetheless. In this political story, the sovereign creator chooses, he elects a particular man, Abram, and then through his family and then through his nation to, to be the political beachhead, to be the, the, the royal lineage through which this sovereign rule, this kingdom order will come and will ultimately fill and transform the universe. It is a story about a kingdom, about the political affairs of a people group under a particular government. It's a story uh, about the laws of that kingdom, about its economy, about its society and culture, about its customs, about its heroes and villains, about its victories and about its defeats. The Bible tells a political story. It is only secondarily a spiritual book and only insofar as the jurisdiction of this kingdom transcends our material boundaries. The kingdom of God covers both spiritual and material domains and the boundaries between which are artificial anyway. It is an ethical and an ideological book only insofar as it reflects the kingdom ethic and the ideology of the king. And it is religious only in so far as the people who were set apart to rule mistakenly turned it into a religious system, which it was never meant to be. To read the Bible as a religious book is to make the same mistake as the Jewish leaders, as as the Pharisees made. And instead of living into the narrative of how earth is coming under heavenly rule, they turned the story of the kingdom into a system of salvation and they missed the very Messiah that they were looking for. The Bible does not present to us an an ethical or a spiritual or a religious system of a salvation. It is a political book that tells the story, as N.T. Wright puts it, of how God became king and how this king is bringing all of creation under his perfect sovereign rule. That God became this king in and through the person of Jesus, his unique son, is the punchline of the whole story. And to be a follower of this Jesus, to to be a Christian then, is to acknowledge that Christ is this cosmic king. And then more than that, to live as if that were true. What is a king? In the truest sense, a a king is a a pretty unfamiliar idea to most of us, even though we now have a king, King Charles, the dude, not the dog. But we don't experience King Charles in the way that that a king or that a kingdom is to be properly understood. The king is the supreme ruler. The king is sovereign over a nation, over a territory of a higher rank than anyone else. And their rank is by birth, not by election. There are two things to note. There are two principles that are going to help us to get our heads around this idea of of king. And the first is the idea of sovereign rule, of sovereignty. And the second is the importance of land, of territory. So sovereignty and territory to to be sovereign is to rule over it is to rule above it is supreme power it is ultimate rule and rule of course is law it is principles it is statutes regulations rules to abide by to be sovereign is to be the ultimate source is to be the ultimate authority of all such rules of all such regulations, a, a king rules sovereignly, and in other words, the will of the king and the law are effectively the same thing. We read in Ecclesiastes 8:4 that the king's word is law. The king personally sovereignly defines good and evil, sovereignly defines. What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? And this is why Jesus can say in in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law because as king, he is the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. To carry that on, when when John writes in 1 John 4 that God is love, that is a statement of sovereign law. Since the king is the law, to declare that God is love is to simultaneously declare that love is the law. Are you with me? If God is love and God is the law, then the law is love. Remember this, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 to 40. You've got this one, Levi. Um, Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees, and one of them, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is, is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on to these, these two commandments. Is summed up by these two commandments. The law is summed up by love because God is the law and God is love. The king said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so there is the sovereign standard of love. Lay your life down, self-emptying, others focused, agape love. This is the sovereignly declared epicenter of the law. So the king is sovereign and his will is done within a territory, within a, within a geography. This is the second point. A king must have a territory, must have uh, a geographical scope of rule over which they are sovereign, over which their law is effective. And so a king must own land. A king without a territory is actually not a king because without land, a king has no jurisdiction. And in the truest sense, this territory is owned by the king. Their sovereign rule is by virtue of the ownership of land. And this is what the word Lord means owner, landlord. And so for this king, for this God of love, his sovereign jurisdiction extends to every single nook and cranny of the universe. The scriptures tell us that the earth is his and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it all that is in the heavens all that is in the earth is yours yours is the kingdom O lord and on and on it all belongs to the king it's all crown land and what this means of course bringing sovereignty and territory together is that the sovereign law of the cosmos is love. The heartbeat of all creation by decree of the Creator Lord, the Sovereign King, is mutual love of God and others. Everywhere that non-love prevails then, it exists in rebellion against the King. And so what we have here in the scriptures is a political story of the the rebellion against and then the complete restoration of the sovereign order of love throughout all creation on earth as it is in heaven. Do we have a good story? Let me say it again. What we have in the scriptures is a political story of the rebellion against and then the complete restoration of the sovereign order of love throughout all of creation on earth as it is in heaven. We have the best story. What we learned last week, of course, was that although the Jews had been looking forward to this coming king, this king who would restore the sovereign order, they expected he would do it by earthly means, that he would do it with chariots and with swords and by force and by violence. But as Jesus said in his trial before Pilate in John 18, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom will not be established by political maneuvering. It will not be established by military might, nor by violence, rather by self-emptying love this promised king was operating out of out of an unrecognizable legal paradigm the law of self-giving love the only true path to peace jesus will establish his kingdom in a manner that is consistent with the culture with the ethos of his kingdom He will not betray his identity, he won't betray his character, he won't betray his nature, he will not betray the kingdom order. The kingdom will be established and it will be expressed through love, through grace, through mercy, through justice and righteousness. So look at this. This is is a snapshot. This is the king that Israel had been looking forward to. So the prophet Jeremiah, six centuries before Christ, he writes this in in Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 5. This is from the NLT. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with with wisdom, he will do what is just and right throughout the land. So this, this righteous descendant who will do what is just and right, justice and righteousness, we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks' time because that's a big theme in its own right. But in essence, what we see here is that this, this king will rule in full accordance with the kingdom order. And this will be his name the Lord is our righteousness so the Lord you know this probably when we see that capital L-O-R-D this is the revealed name of God this is Yahweh it is the tetragrammaton the four letters Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. The, the I am that I am, the name that is revealed to, to Moses. And it's interesting, it actually um, derives from, from the Midian and from the Arabic word for love, for desire, for passion. Right from the get-go, God revealed himself as love. So Yahweh, so God is our Righteousness is our right relationship, is our restored relationship. God is our salvation, which is cool because this is the meaning of the name Yeshua or Jesus. God is our salvation. So through the prophet Jeremiah, God is foretelling of this Davidic king who will rule in full accordance with and who will restore God's kingdom order throughout the land god is our salvation will be his name this is who we're waiting for the king then perhaps 50 or 60 years later in the middle of the fifth century bc ezekiel writes this chapter 37 my servant david will be their king they will have only one shepherd so it's not king david it's not david he died some 500 years earlier rather this is the davidic line this king will obey my regulations and be careful to keep my decrees they will live in the land i gave my servant jacob the land where their ancestors lived and so you can see sovereignty and territory coming here together here The land I gave my servant Jacob is not just the land of Canaan. It's not the land of Israel. Rather, land that was was given to Jacob or, or that was promised to Jacob was a passing on of the promise to Abraham, the multitude of nations. In Genesis 28, 14, the Lord says to Jacob, Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you and through your descendants. They and their children and their grandchildren after them will live there forever, generation after generation. They will live there in in the land promised to Jacob on earth, generation after generation not heaven, worth noting. And my servant David will be their prince forever and I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise of shalom, shalom, the social manifestation of, sh- of, of love. And I will give them their land and I'll increase their numbers and I'll put my temple, I will put my presence among them forever and I'll make my home Among them, I will be their God and they will be my people. God is not making our home with him. He's making his home with us. If you fast forward to to Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see that God gets what what he wants. And so here through the prophet Ezekiel, God is telling of us of this same Davidic king, ushering in everlasting shalom, Across the earth, where God will make his home, here with us. Then the prophet Zechariah, 500 years before Christ, he prophesied this in chapter 14, verse 9. He says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. The Lord, Yahweh, will be king. This promised Davidic king, by definition a human being, will be God himself. Sovereign over the territory of the earth, over the land. That's the promise and we read it over and over throughout the prophets. And then as we saw last week, the the New Testament writers all believed that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed this promised Davidic king the prince of peace god with us the everlasting king over all the earth in 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 prophesying in telling of of jesus coming birth the uh the the angel speaking to mary in luke 1 from verse 31 the angel says this you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him jesus He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So here he is, this promised Davidic king, Yeshua. God is our salvation. The king whose reign will never end. Paul, the the ex-Pharisee, the the expert in the law, the expert in the Scriptures, he was writing to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And and Paul says to Timothy, "I, I charge you to keep the commandment, keep the law, keep the order, without spot, without blame, until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus of Nazareth is the resolution to the entire Israel story. God's sovereign reign on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the point. Jesus is king, crowned with thorns, enthroned on a cross, resurrected and ascended. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is now seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels, all the authorities, all the powers accept his authority. He is sovereign. And we know what to do with our Savior. We worship him with thanksgiving and with praise. And we should do that. But Savior is a dot point. ...under the infinitely larger category of king. What do we do with the king? We've spoken a great deal about belief in the last 18 months. But we need to kind of ratchet that up so that we understand it correctly. You'll remember, and you can probably quote it back to me, John 20, 30 to 31, the whole reason that John wrote his account and, and went through all of the signs one by one. And he said, These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So this is the good news. This is the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king. The gospel is not a set of salvific propositions about sin and death and eternity. It is the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And John tells us that by believing in him you will have life you will have a place in his everlasting kingdom of life and light and love so we must be abundantly clear about what it means to believe because it cannot be just some mental agreement with a spiritual idea because that is not how sovereignty works To believe, to mentally agree that Jesus is king is necessary, but that's insufficient for life in the kingdom. Similarly, we know that we are saved by faith, but to have faith, if we understand that to mean only some heartfelt confidence that he is king, that too is necessary, but it's also insufficient. Rather, we are to live in a manner faithful, to the king we are to embody a life of fidelity to the sovereign king lives that demonstrate his reign here on earth not to win spiritual brownie points but because the ultimate political reality is that jesus is king The Greek word here for for believe or for believing in John 20 is, is pisteo. It is from the root pistis, which is where we get or what we translate as faith. We translate it as belief. We translate it as trust and as confidence, but even better as fidelity and as faithfulness. And perhaps the most suitable translation of this word about believe, and certainly what is demanded in reference to the king of kings, is allegiance. Professor of theology at Quincy University in the US, Matthew Bates, he writes this and I reckon he is right. With regard to eternal salvation, rather than speaking of belief, trust, Or faith in Jesus, we should speak instead of fidelity to Jesus as the cosmic Lord, allegiance to Jesus, the King. So let's be clear on this. You don't get to make Jesus Lord. You can't make him Lord of your life. I don't get to make him King, he is King. It's not up to us. He is the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of my life. He is the Lord of everyone else's life. We don't get to decide. All we decide, and perhaps only for a time, is whether or not we declare our allegiance to the King. Yahweh says this through the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 45, verse 22. Let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name, I've spoken the truth, I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. This is not a democracy. The only appropriate response to the king is allegiance. As citizens of his everlasting kingdom, we are to embody that allegiance. We are to do the will of the king who is establishing his rule of love within us and throughout the entire cosmos. This is life in the kingdom. Allegiance to the king. Jesus says to his disciples in John 4 verse 34, he says to them, says to the disciples, my food, my nourishment, my my source of life is that I might do the will of the one who has sent me and may bring his work to completion. Jesus' own source of life is full allegiance to the Father, doing his will, doing his work and bringing it to completion. Just two chapters later, the disciples say to Jesus, they say, well, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe, pisteo, in the one who has sent you. Pledge fidelity to, faithfulness to, allegiance to the one he has sent. And just as the son has life, In allegiance to the Father, in the same way, we find life in allegiance to the Son. And then a few verses on, Jesus repeats himself, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not do my own will. This is what allegiance looks like. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him, pisteo in him, who declare allegiance to him, should have, has is the word, eternal life. Life in the coming age. And so here is this common ground of our Christology. This is the starting point of imagining all we might be, all we might do in response. Jesus is king. He is the king of the universe. The full sovereign governmental authority of God the Father in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ the Son. And in this political story, the story the Bible tells us is all about the enthronement of this fully human son. The establishment of his everlasting kingdom of peace on earth as it is in heaven. Anything that we might think and say next about mission, anything that we might think and say next about church, Is anchored in this political, this governmental authority. Jesus is the king. In the same way that the son does the sovereign will of the father, we as the citizens of that kingdom do the sovereign will of the son. That is life. It is to him alone, our Lord, our God, our saviour, our king, to life and light and love itself. We declare allegiance and anything else is a dead end. I'm going to ask you to spend some time in prayer together this morning about this. I'm going to ask that you might move your seats around, that you would create little groups of three or four or five or six. You can do that now. Gather around one another. You can move the furniture. It's completely fine. Make sure everyone's in. a minute or two thinking and even just talking about this idea that Jesus is king. And then what is it that, that you would pray? What is it that you would want to say about him? What is it that you need to say to him? What would you declare over his sovereign territory? What would you declare over your household, over your streets, neighbourhoods, over our nation? What would you declare over our planet that we might ally ourselves with love? Let's do that for, for a few minutes and then I'll, I'll close this out.